Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Holy Waiting. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul encourages Christians in the midst of an ungodly culture to live in holiness as they eagerly await the return of Jesus. This morning's text is going to come out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5, this is, uh, we're beginning our study on the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's going to run about 12 weeks or so. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, the uh, verses will be there on your uh, card that you got this morning coming in the little booklet, and also they'll be up here on the screen, you can follow along. And if you're using your phone or whatever, we're, uh, this is going to be out of the New International Version. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, hear the words of the living God. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. We're going to be studying the book of 1 Thessalonians over the next 12 weeks, and one of the major topics in it is eschatology. And eschatology is one of those big words, and all it really means is the study of the last things, or the study of the end times, is how many people phrase it. And it can be a really popular thing to talk about among Christians. I remember when I was a young believer back in the 1970s, the big seller at the time was Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and uh, if you've been around a long time, you'll remember when that was all the rage. And uh, about a decade or so ago, it was left behind, the whole series of novels that went out of that. And, And Christians have oftentimes loved talking about this, but oftentimes our focus on eschatology has been very speculative. We get all kinds of charts and and drawings, and there's all these crazy pictures of what we're imagining that we're seeing there in the book of Revelation, other places, there's all these kind of unusual ideas. And as a result, for many people, there's been almost a backlash against it saying, you know, the the joke is kind of, I'm a pan-millennial or pan is, it's all going to work out in the end, you know, whatever. I don't know what I think about that because it just seems like there's all of this crazy stuff and I'm not sure what I believe. And so eschatology has come across to seem very irrelevant. And in fact, I think some of the popularity among Christians, to be blunt, is because the way it's been taught makes it very irrelevant. I like studying it because there's no requirements. It doesn't have anything to do with my regular life, so I can just spend time talking about it. But we're going to see in this series just what we saw in the book of Revelation. When we looked at those seven letters, they were anything but irrelevant to our current life. In fact, I think we all saw that though they were written to seven churches in a very different time and place almost two millennia ago, it seemed like some of them were written right today. Very relevant, very uh, current. Well, the same thing is going to be true as we look at 1 Thessalonians, and we're entitling this whole series, Holy Waiting. 
And that, the, the idea behind that is how do we live in light of Christ's return? As we are waiting for the return of Christ, which the New Testament tells us to do, and Thessalonians is going to tell us to do that over and over again, how do we live now in light of that? And we're going to see that the call in 1 Thessalonians is that we are encouraged as Christians in the midst of an ungodly culture to live in holiness as we eagerly await the return of Jesus. That's kind of our theme and what we're going to be talking about in this series, Holy Waiting. So let's dive in. Now, as a little bit of background to 1 Thessalonians, just so we kind of understand where we're at, uh, the city of Thessalonica is actually a city that still exists today. And it is in the section of Macedonia. You can see up here on the map, this is Greece. The, the seven churches that we just studied are over in Turkey. You can see there Ephesus and Laodicea. Well, you can see Thessalonica, but unlike many of the, the cities that we read about in the, the couple chapters there in Revelation, Thessalonica still exists today. It's actually still the second largest city in Greece, behind only Athens. Uh, it was the capital of Macedonia and the largest city in Macedonia, which was that section of Greece. That's where actually Alexander the Great had come from and began his quest around the world. Uh, 400 years before this letter was written. And Paul went to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He had gone from Philippi, you can see up there just to the right of it, to Thessalonica, and he actually went there on a road that was named the Via Ignatia. And Beth can put a picture up here. This is still a picture of it today. Now you should be amazed because the Romans built roads that are still here 2,000 years later. We can't get the blacktop to last two years in our roads. But they've got these roads that have actually lasted for 2,000 years. That's the road that Paul walked down from Philippi to Thessalonica. Now, the reason I'm showing you is not just because it's there. That was a major highway back then. That was like I-95 in the Roman Empire, okay? Major, major road that Paul went from Philippi to Thessalonica. Now, when Paul got there, he suffered persecution both in Philippi and Thessalonica, when he got there, he suffered persecution there as well. And in fact, the persecution was so bad among the Thessalonians that, you remember, Paul had to leave, and he goes to the next city, which is Berea, and the, the Jewish leaders from Thessalon Thessalonica followed him to Berea, showed up there, and caused problems there. And we have in Acts 17, 11, a very famous verse that I commend you to memorize, we're told, now the Bereans were of more noble character than Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And Luke's making a contrast and saying these people who followed from Thessalonica, they had actually not examined the scriptures. They weren't willing to listen to what Paul said, but the Bereans did. So Thessalonica was a place where there had been great persecution, not only for Paul, but for the church that was left behind. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 17. If you go there, you can read about Paul going there, his time there, and then what follows on from there. So there was persecution in Philippi, where he'd been thrown in jail with Silas. He went to Thessalonica. There is persecution there. Now, this letter that we're going to be looking at, 1 Thessalonians, where Paul says, I'm writing to the church of the Thessalonians. So he's writing actually to the believers there, the, not the ones that had persecuted him, but the ones who have believed. And this is actually one of the earliest writings in the New Testament. There's some debate among scholars as to when Galatians was written. A number of them think that Galatians was written later after the Thessalonian letters and the Corinthian letters. 
I happen to disagree and think Galatians is the earliest letter, and I, when I taught on Galatians, I explained why. But in any event, the latest it can be is 1 Thessalonians is the second writing in all the New Testament. We think of the Gospels, of course, but the Gospels are actually written after this. The sayings and acts of Jesus have been circulating around, but this letter is written probably in the late 40s. So we're within about 20 years of when Jesus had died. Paul is fairly new in his ministry, actually, still at this point. And he's writing the Thessalonians because the faith is taking hold in a pagan environment. Okay, It was Jewish leaders that had persecuted Paul, but most of Thessalonica was actually a pagan city, just like the ones we read about in the book of Revelation. And the, the believers are struggling. And Paul founded the church and then had to leave. And... So he'd been worried about their faith. We're going to see later, he sends Timothy back, and he's worried, how is the faith lasting in this pagan environment? What are they doing? And so there are two key themes he's going to deal with throughout the letter. We're going to keep seeing. Eschatology, the return of Jesus. There's a major section on that. But then also holiness. So therefore, holy waiting. What are we going to do? And so the key message we're going to get, and we'll talk about this today, but also throughout the whole time, and I want us to keep this ratcheted or, or fixed in our mind, and this is that a proper focus on the return of Christ does not lead to speculation about dates and times. If you think of eschatology and you think of a nine-series fictional set that's full of all kinds of wild speculation, you don't understand eschatology in the New Testament. Okay, It's not about that. It leads to holy living now. That is always, always, always what eschatology is about in the New Testament. Here's a clue for you. Jesus told us one clear thing about when of eschatology. The when is, you don't know. Nor does I, nor does anybody else who's writing all these books. They don't know. Which is why every prediction that's ever been made has been wrong. And they will continue to be wrong. That's not the focus. The focus is, how do I live now. And how I live now is in holiness. So let's dive into today's text as Paul begins this letter. And he begins with a holy prayer of thanks. Paul is going to begin, as he always does, with an apostolic blessing and prayer. And so notice here, he tells them, you know, I'm writing to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. That's his blessing. And then we always thank God for you mentioning you in our prayers. He moves into his prayer. And Paul almost always begins his letters this way. If, if he's writing to churches, there is only one exception to this rule, and that's the Galatians, because if you have compromised on the gospel, Paul has nothing to give thanks for. There's, there's nothing he can thank God for regarding you because you have lost the gospel. But with every other church, even the Corinthians who are a mess, Paul goes into an extended prayer of thanksgiving, and he does that here as well. And this is actually modeled on Greek letters at the time. It's not just something Paul did. Paul's following the typical format where people would say, hey, this is from me to this person. And then they would usually begin with a greeting, and then they would oftentimes give kind of a prayer or a wish or a blessing to the people. And in fact, this has got a little bit of a gospel twist because when we talk about grace and peace, Paul's doing something that's kind of funny there with the Greek language and bringing in a Hebrew thing. I'm not going to talk about this morning. I'll probably talk about it in after hours this week. 
So if you want to hear how the gospel saturates, even when Paul basically says hello in a letter, it's got to be filled with the gospel. Paul can't even say hi without the gospel coming out, which is a model for the way you and I ought to be. If we're cut, we should bleed gospel. And that's the way Paul is. So if you tune into office, uh, After Hours, we will talk about that. And uh, it is so important to see that th this is over and over again. We can skip by these little prayers, but they are laying something out for us. And so I want to take time today to look at this Thanksgiving for the Thessalonians and then ask ourselves, what does that mean for us as believers today? So Paul, with the Thanksgiving for the Thessalonians, he tells us several things. Number one, that they give thanks for the Thessalonians continually. Notice the phrase here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. Every word basically tells us something about what Paul's doing. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. So first off, we, it's interesting, 1 Thessalonians is the letter in the, of all of Paul's that has the most plural pronouns. Because Paul said right at the beginning, if you notice, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing this. It's probably mainly Paul, but over and over again in this letter, he keeps saying, we, we did this, we did that, we do this. And so he tells us here, this is not just I, Paul, praying for you. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we constantly, as the apostolic team that founded you as a church, we pray for you regularly, or we do this. Secondly, always, Thanksgiving for the Thessalonians was a constant practice. I'm going to hit this note several times this morning. Thanksgiving is not something we do once a year. Thanksgiving is not something that's just to be an occasional thing. Paul says, we always thank God for you. Thirdly, it's God. We thank God. And I'll come back to this point in a minute, but thanks is ultimately to God for his people. That's what should animate our Thanksgiving. Ultimately, thanks has to rise to someone who has provided this benefit and that is going to go back to God. And then all of you, and this is an important point right at the beginning to kind of lay out is, thanksgiving in Paul's letters is never about stuff. It's about people. And we tend to be, want to think that we're thankful for stuff, but what we ought to be thankful for is people. And I can actually say, I am, I am grateful for people. I am grateful for you all. My problem usually comes in. You've heard about my anger. My anger is usually not at people. It's usually at stuff. Technology and things, I, I constantly mutter, you know, you only have one purpose. That's to work. And if you're not working, I'm angry with you. Okay? So, so don't follow me in that. Don't follow me in that. But I would encourage you, your Thanksgiving shouldn't be... Stuff is not what we ought to be thankful for. Stuff comes and stuff goes. People created in the image of God are eternal. And so Paul says, I give thanks for you. Okay, I give thanks for you. The gospel should make all Christians thankful people. If you are a gospel person, if I am a gospel person, we should be thankful people, both for what God has done for us and the evidence of his work in others. We're going to see as he unpacks this for the Thessalonians, Paul says, I can be grateful because the gospel's at work in you. God's at work in you. It doesn't matter what else is going on, I'm grateful. God has been at work in me and he's at work in you. And so thankfulness should permeate the lives of believers no matter what the circumstances. As Paul oftentimes does, his thanksgiving prayers kind of tip his hand to where he's going. 
And at the end of the letter, the way Paul writes, there's two moods in the Greek. One's called the indicative, which tells you this, I'm just telling you the way things are. And then there's the imperative, which is, now I'm telling you what you have to do. The indicative is about the gospel. The imperative is about law. Well, the first imperatives in the letter don't really show up all the way. They mainly, overwhelmingly, show up starting at chapter 5, verse 13. And Paul gives a whole string of commands, saying, everything I've told you, now here's what you're going to do. Well, among those commands, right up front, is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, and he returns to his opening prayer, and he says this, be joyful, how often? Always. Pray, how often? Continually. Give thanks, when? In all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I can save you all a bunch of money. You can go into a Christian bookstore and buy all kinds of crazy books about the will of God. Here is God's will for you. Be joyful. Pray constantly. And no matter what is going on in life, you ought to be giving thanks. And that won't sell any books, will it? See, we don't like that. Can we go back to the speculation about the end times? Paul says, well, here's what you ought to be doing. You should be joyful. You should be full of prayer, and you should be overflowing with thanksgiving. Christians are called to lives of joy, prayer, and thanksgiving, regardless of the circumstances. I put this verse up because, remember, this is what Paul's saying front. I'm thankful for you, and I'm thankful all the time, no matter what. Hey, I don't remember that, you know, I got beaten up there in Philippi and in Thessalonica and you all chased me around. I don't remember that. That's not what I'm thinking about. I'm grateful for you. No matter what my circumstance, I am grateful. And Christians are called to the same thing. Joy, prayer, and thanksgiving are not dependent upon external circumstances, but rather they flow from spirits permeated by the gospel. Say that again. Joy, prayer, and thanksgiving are not dependent at all. They don't enter into the formula, circumstances. They're not part of the equation. If your spirit is permeated by the gospel, joy, prayer, and thanksgiving always overflow. And so if I am not overflowing with joy, prayer, and thanksgiving, the solution is not, well, if my circumstances would change. Paul says, that doesn't enter into the equation. That has nothing to do with it. In fact, if you go back and read Acts 16 and 17 about Paul's missionary journey, you remember it's when they're in Philippi, he and Silas have been beaten. They're laying there with open wounds gushing and all that's going on. And what are they doing? They are singing hymns of praise to God because my external circumstances have nothing to do with joy, prayer, worship, thanksgiving. If, my, if that's not my response, then the first thing I ought to check is, is my spirit being permeated by the gospel? Because if my spirit's permeated by the gospel, joy, prayer, and thanksgiving will be there. If they are not there, that's a sure sign I have not been meditating, I have not been marinating in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because gospel people are joyful, praying, thankful people. Now, Paul goes on and he explains what this thanksgiving looks like in kind of a, a symphony here. What I mean by that is there's thanks, but there's three parts. And he does it by three participles. It's not important that you remember what kind of verbs these are. But the NIV 
And almost all English translations here break verses 2, 3, and 4 down into different sentences. And that's because in English, we like to do that, but it's all one long sentence in Greek. Okay, they, they like doing it. And what you have is, the verb is, we thank God for you. That's the verb, to thank God. And then there are participles that are related back to that verb, and they tell you, here's how we thank God for you. First, we are mentioning you in our prayers. In verse 3, we are remembering before our God and Father. And in verse 4, knowing, brothers, that God has loved you and has chosen you. Okay, so the participles usually end with the ing, if you want to think of it that way. So it's, we, are thank, we thank God. How do we do it? Mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, and knowing, brothers, you've been loved by God and chosen by Him. Those three form Paul's prayers. So let's take a look at them real briefly. Thanksgiving, first of all, is done when we mention someone in prayer, mentioning them in prayer. Now this is because Thanksgiving, as I said a minute ago, ultimately goes back to God, which is why, by the way, it's not very popular in our culture. Because if you're going to be thankful for something, who are you thankful to? Right, just, you know, kind of the universe doesn't work, okay? So we get uncomfortable and we don't like it. And I've said this before, the holiday we really ought to extend is Thanksgiving, but we're eating it on both sides now because we're just not even sure what to do with it. And if we, if we get really serious about it, G.K. Chesterton, who became a, a, a well-known believer in the early 1900s, actually became a believer because he found himself being grateful and he realized, as basically an agnostic or atheist, I had nobody to give thanks to, but everything in me was crying out to give thanks, and so I started wrestling through it, and that's how he became a believer. And so Paul here says that thanksgiving goes back to God. We should verbally be giving thanks to God in our prayers. We thank God, how? Mentioning you in our prayers. It should be our regular practice. Notice Paul says that again, it's we always thank God for you, mentioning you in our prayers. And if you look at the um, NIV and a number of translations have the word continually at the beginning of verse 3, it's not clear in the Greek. It may be attached here that we we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers continually, okay? Or it may be remembering today. Either way, though, it's a constant activity. We are always praying for you and always thanking God for you. And so when we pray, our prayers should always contain thanksgiving to God. And that includes when we're praying for other people. If you are praying for someone in your life, do you give thanks to God for them? Do I give thanks to God for them? Am I thanking God for the evidence of His work in their lives? And this includes both God's saving grace and His common grace. As I regularly pray for my wife and my kids, for example, I thank God for His saving grace in their life. I thank God that when my wife was run over as a young child by a car, and she did not probably know Christ at that time, I am grateful she did not die. God kept her. And I am grateful that in His saving grace, He reached down and saved her in high school. And I want to thank God for that. I thank God for the evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in her life. I do the same thing with my four children every day. God did not have to be merciful and save my children. And I do not take that for granted. I thank God for that. But even if I'm praying 
for an unbelieving neighbor. I, I have a next door neighbor, Muhammad, who you, you might be able to guess is not a Christian, but is rather a Muslim from that name. I pray for Muhammad regularly because we're wanting to reach out to the gospel with, to our friend Muhammad. But Muhammad has been kind to us at certain times. I can thank God for Muhammad being a kind next-door neighbor. That is still God's common grace. Because, friend, the effect of sin in your life and mine, if it wasn't for God's common grace, we'd all, the Bible would have been very short. We'd have killed each other in the garden. It would have been over. Okay? It's God's common grace that restrains our sin. It's God's common grace working that allows us to act as image bearers rather than those in league with Satan. And so no matter who you are praying for, if it's an unbelieving neighbor, if it is a coworker that's giving you a hard time, there is some evidence of the grace of God in their lives. And we ought to latch onto that and thank God for that and pray God where that beachhead is, extend it. Let that work go out. That's why Paul can look at the Corinthians who are a mess and say, but I am thank." In fact, in one of his longest Thanksgiving prayers, and say, I thank God for you all because I see the evidence of God at work in your life. Secondly, Paul says we not only thank God by mentioning you in our prayers, but we do it by remembering you, and particularly we remember gospel fruit in you. So again, this isn't really a new sentence in the Greek. It's we mention you in our prayers and continually remembering before our God and Father. We continually remember before our God and Father. Thanksgiving always requires remembering. I've mentioned this before. It is a huge, important concept in the Old Testament. Read the Psalms. How often are Psalms simply them recounting, this is what God did. Oh, God brought us out of Egypt. God brought us through the wilderness. God brought us through the Red Sea. When we came to the Jordan, God made it go back. God fed us with manna. God has cared for us. And they recount the mighty works of God for them as a people and even for them individually, reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness to us and to others. If you don't do that, you won't be thankful, nor will I. And we are not taught to do this. We remind ourselves of all the things we haven't liked. Is that not the way we are? I remember a slight somebody gave me 27 years ago. They don't even remember. I don't remember the 500 acts of kindness since then, but I remember the one thing I didn't like. Paul says, no, we remember before our God and Father. We, we, we stir these things up in our remembrance. If I focus on negatives in others, thanksgiving withers. But if I daily recount evidence of God's work in myself and others, gratitude overflows. It really is that simple. What am I stirring up? Am I focusing on the negatives, the areas where the grace of God has not yet accomplished the work? If you do that, thanksgiving will start to wither and die. If, on the other hand, we sit back, you and I, and our focus becomes on where God is at work, gratitude starts to overflow. And that's true in my own life, and also when I am considering and praying for others. And there should be a particular focus because Paul's focus here is on the gospel and its fruit. So notice here, I've got the, the words that are, are gospel. Um, well, there's actually a triad here of faith, love, and hope. So, so notice you, we all are familiar with this triad. A lot of us think of it from 1 Corinthians 13, but it's actually many, many times in the New Testament. And which one is the most important? We think, you know, 
These three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That's true in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the greatest because of what Paul's talking about. Here in 1 Thessalonians, actually, hope and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ is the foundational virtue out of which the others spring. And so this triad is there, and, but notice that there is a focus on gospel and its fruit. Work, labor, and endurance are the phrase that Paul uses here. And so you notice that the green things are the fruit. The red things are the gospel. The gospel is faith towards God, love towards God, hope in the return of Christ. The fruit of that is work that comes from faith, labor that comes from love, and endurance that comes from hope inspired by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these, these three things, the gospel is having an effect. Now, interestingly, you may remember the words work, labor, and endurance are the exact same things that Jesus commended the Ephesian church for in Revelation 2.2. When we just studied those letters, the Ephesian church, remember, it's the very first letter, and they've left their first love, but he says, but in the, I do commend you that you have work and labor and endurance, the exact same triad that is here. But here, Paul is specifically pointing out the gospel root, faith, love, and hope, and saying that's where your fruit comes from. And so the faith, love, and hope are towards Jesus. The work, labor, and endurance are actions towards others, okay? Faith towards God produces work in me that is gospel fruit that I give to other people. Love towards God prompts labor, and the word here is actually uh, that word for hard, laborious toil, because some Thessalonians, we're going to learn later, have said, well, I'm a Christian now, and I'm waiting for Jesus to return, so I don't really need to work. I don't, you know, that whole thing about having a job. And Paul here is writing, no, 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 if you love God, you will not labor less, you will labor more, and you will labor to serve your neighbor. And if you have hope in the return of Jesus, Paul says that gives you endurance. Now, no matter what comes your way, even if it is persecution, that is the fruit of the gospel. And so when we are thinking about and praying for others, we should have a focus of the fruit of the gospel in their lives. If they are a believer, where do we see God at work? Where do we see fruit in them? Because the fruit of the gospel in our life and the lives of those we love should produce gratitude to God. Whatever else is going on in life, and there are always things we can focus on that are negative. But if we are having a biblical, godly focus, we're going to say, hey, I see fruit coming out. See, that's what Paul sees here in the Thessalonians. He's hearing back and saying, you know what? Faith is producing works. Love is producing labor. Hope is, is inspiring and producing endurance. And therefore, I am grateful. Whatever else. Yeah, there are some Thessalonians who quit working. Some of them are becoming busybodies. Some of them have gotten a wrong understanding of what the return of Christ means. But I'm grateful and thankful because I see fruit of the gospel. And the gospel and the Spirit, which work on us in an invisible, internal manner, always produce an external, visible result. This is one of the greatest passages for seeing and understanding uh, gospel and then works that flow from it. We are justified by faith alone. But as Luther correctly said, that faith is never remains alone. It always brings its friend works in tow. And so there are works that come from faith. You can't see the gospel inside me. You can't see the Holy Spirit working inside me. 
What you can see is the gospel and the Spirit producing fruit in and through me. That is external and that is visible. And so the real focus of thanksgiving here, however, is not so much the external fruit as it is that of which the fruit evidences, the work of God's Spirit and the gospel in the lives of these believers. What Paul is really, really grateful for is not so much works as he is faith. Not so much labor as he is, that labor's proof that you love God. Not so much your endurance as he is, that that shows me you got hope in Jesus. That hope is still there. What is primary? And please remember this to every one of us. Whatever else is going on in your family, whatever else is going on in your life, with, with friends, people around you, if there is evidence that they are part of the people of God, there should be undying gratitude. There are billions right now that have little to no access to the gospel. There are billions right now. If the world should end, if Jesus should come back, they are bereft of hope standing before a holy God. And if you have a family member, whatever else is going on, or friends, whatever else is happening, and they, by the miracle of God, have had their eyes opened and they have embraced Christ in faith, you have all the stuff you need for Thanksgiving from now till eternity. Friend, that, that's what needs to inspire us in our prayers. Not the areas where the Spirit hasn't yet completed, but where He is already doing His work. And that leads to Paul's third area. That third participle is knowing. And he says, for we, we know that they've again started a new sentence, but it's literally just knowing brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. Paul goes here into the mystery of election. He's saying, I don't know and understand exactly all how the Holy Spirit did, but I know this because I'm seeing these external evidences. I know God has saved you. And I know that that means he has loved you and he has loved you eternally. You are his called and chosen people. He's simply working backwards. The Thessalonian believers, he's giving thanks to them. Well, then he says, but then I've got to give thankful that the gospel has worked in you and has produced this fruit. And well, then that means that I know that God has loved you. And I know that somehow God has chosen you to work in you. He's just working backwards and saying, and every one of those things I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the fruit. I'm thankful for the gospel. I'm thankful that God miraculously called and chose and saved you. I'm grateful for every one of those. And that is something that we should have. The same pattern as the gospel and its fruit is being evidenced here. Paul's saying, don't just look at the fruit, consider the root. If you Thessalonians, in the middle of a city where most people rejected Christ, where most people did not believe, did not listen, in fact, many of them followed us to the next city and refused to hear the message, and yet you did. Why is that? Is that because you were so smart? Is that because you were so holy? Or is that because God loved you? We love him because he first loved us. And so Paul in his prayer is going back. And we'll look more at this idea next week because we'll start with these verses. So we'll, we'll stop there and I want to go to applying the word. So what, it, what does this mean for us in our holy waiting? What would we learn out of this text? Well, the first question is, do I practice thankfulness to God? Paul, Silas, and Timothy are modeling thanksgiving for us. 
And we are all called, remember that verse I showed you at the end when Paul's going to get and say, well, what does all this mean for you? And one of the first things is, I want you to pray and be joyful and I want you to be thankful all the time. So we are called to that. Now, this is countercultural. We Americans are always about what's still not right, how we can improve. We love to complain and focus on what is wrong. We love biting irony. We, we love griping and moaning about things. It's like a whole industry in our country right now. That's what we want to do. So this is very counterculture. You want, right off, we're in a pagan environment that is not grateful, is not thankful, is not even comfortable with those concepts anymore. What are we supposed to do? Well, am I thankful for God's many blessings? Friend, you, everything you have comes from God. Paul, right after he left Thessalonica, he ends up down in Athens and he speaks to the Athenians there and he says, that in him we live and move and have our being. And, and God is the one who gave to us life and breath and everything else. So who here is alive? Are you alive? Who here is sucking God's air in and out of your lungs right now? Does God owe you that air? Does he charge you for that air? He doesn't. And Paul says, and by the way, Everything else. I, I could go on. I mean, if, if life and breath weren't enough, the clothes on your back, the food you eat, the fact that your body is working, the family you have, the friends you have, everything you have comes from God. Am I thankful to God for that? Does the gospel give me joy and gratitude, even in tough times? Because not only do I know that as a creation of God, all of God's creational gifts. But on top of that, you and I are not only sucking air, we are, we are breathing in and out the gospel. We are, we are alive eternally. Amen. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And God raised you up and made you alive with Christ Jesus. And so if that is true for you and I, does it produce joy and gratitude in prayer even in tough times? I remind you what I said earlier, joy, prayer, and thanksgiving are not dependent on external circumstances, but flow from spirits permeated by the gospel. If my answer to this question is, I don't think so, the solution is not, I'm going to go on a 30-day resolution plan. The solution is, wake up and meditate on the gospel. Meditate on the gospel. Think about what God has done for you in Christ. If that does not produce gratitude, you're dead. You're dead. Am I grateful? Now, another question as I'm teasing this out, do I verbally express thanks to God in prayer? Because see here, I know, yeah, well, yeah, I, I am. I'm grateful to God. Well, how often do you tell him, Brett? He knows. He knows all things. He sees my heart. Right? You know, that, that, that's not true. Thanksgiving that is not verbally expressed is illusory. Real thanksgiving finds its way into our prayers and into our words. If you're not saying it, you're not grateful. Nor am I. There's an old country song, what's going without saying needs to be said. Okay, and that's the truth. And that's true whether I'm expressing it to God 
or even expressing it to others. If I'm grateful, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Does Jesus say might speak? Occasionally speaks? What's coming out up here, the fruit tells me what's going on in here. Is there gratitude overflowing? Because if it's not verbally expressed, it's not real. It doesn't exist. So am I thankful to God? Second question, do I practice thanksgiving to others? Now that may sound funny, but have you noticed Paul writes his thanksgiving prayers out so the people he's thanking God for can read them? Because Paul understands it's not enough just to thank God for those people. Paul needs to thank them. And he does it in the context of his prayer, but he's letting them do it. He's almost always telling churches this. So, do I regularly express thanks to the people around me? Am I someone who thanks people for what they are doing? Let me, I'm going to keep turning this one around so we can answer that question. Do I focus on problems or things for which I am grateful and those I love and am close to? And I'm particularly thinking of them. I won't ask you how grateful you are for the guy who cuts you off in the car. But the people you live with, because we can so easily take them for granted. Okay? The people we are closest to, our family, our closest friends, do I focus on things for which I am grateful in them? If I am asked right now, can I quickly list things I am grateful for in my spouse, my kids, my family? Husbands, I'm going to do it. Marty, no, I'm not going to do that to you, Marty. <laughs> if I were to walk down and start handing a mic around and say, husband, list off three or five things that you're grateful for for your wife. Are they going to come out quickly? Or are you going to say, can I get back to you on that? Parents with our kids. Our kids with our parents. Can we list things we are grateful for? What about church members, coworkers, and neighbors? If I were to go around and ask the same question and say, what about this person in our congregation? What, what are you grateful for? Can, can we say something? Or the first thing that comes to mind, I can tell you what I'm not grateful for. Because that tells me where my focus is. My neighbor, my coworker. Here's an even harder question as we're turning this around. What if instead of you asking me, Brett, what are you thankful for about Linda? You went and asked Linda, what is Brett thankful for about you? Because what that will reveal is whether I've been telling her or not. Does she know what I'm grateful for? Do not go ask her that question. Yes. He could because I, th this is actually one thing where you can follow me as I follow Paul and as I follow Christ. I tell my wife every single day things I am grateful for, and it's not hard. It is not hard to do. But if you were asked that about a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, could they say, oh, this is what the person would say they're grateful for? Turn it again. It's a little different angle. How often do I verbally thank those closest to me? Remember, thanksgiving that is not verbally expressed is illusory. It doesn't exist. 
Real thanksgiving finds its way into our prayers and words. So it's not enough for me to say, well, I'm grateful for Linda. She knows that. No, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. See, and the problem is, remember, since the garden, when we sin, we immediately hide from God and we hide from one another. And the reason we do that is we are sure. We now know we are naked and we are sure God and others are going to judge us. And that is your, that is your modus operandi. That is the foundation from which you act and the foundation from which I act. And the thing that covers that, God comes to us and speaks the gospel to pull those fig leaves off. We speak gospel and gratitude towards one another so that we can be open and we can be vulnerable. And don't assume, I don't know why Linda is grateful for me, nor does she know why I'm grateful for her unless I speak that word. You don't know unless I speak the word to you. What we do think is we fear that what we're all meditating on is the worst parts of us. And we know them. If you're honest and you look in that mirror tomorrow morning, you know your faults. You know your flaws. Are we speaking gratitude to one another? And last turn on this question, and then we're going to have a water baptism. When I pray for family and others, again, particularly people that I'm close to, do I give thanks for them? Or does my prayer largely consist of, God, here's my laundry list of things that you need to fix. Here's where it's not right. Now that's a real challenge. Because we so often, and I think we Americans struggle with prayer because we view it as a way to get things fixed. That's not what prayer is about. First off, it's really about communion with God. But in the context of others, when I wake up tomorrow morning and my little prayer list pops up and tells me, pray for Linda, first thing on my list every day, is my prayer dominated by, Lord, we're still working on this, we still got to get this fixed, or is my prayer dominated by, I am grateful. I am grateful. Lord, look at how the gospel has worked in her Lord, I am grateful you have brought us together. I am so thankful. And then out of that, Lord, I pray for her. Is that what our prayers look like? Because if it's not the gratitude prayer, if it's the laundry list of what's wrong prayer, that gets boring quick. And God generally, to be blunt, isn't really listening to those prayers. He's just not. Not what he's after. So which way does it work? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to have a water baptism here, and this is gospel fruit. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, like thanksgiving, faith, love, and hope are externally expressed if they're real. Okay, thanksgiving is an illusion if it's not verbally expressed. Well, faith is an illusion if it doesn't find its way into our actions. Well, Water baptism is an outward visible expression of our inward invisible faith, love, and hope in Jesus. And so right now, Ed's going to come forward, and is uh, Galosha coming forward as well, with their sons, Dylan and Kyle, and they are going to do a water baptism. We're going to pray for them, and I want to encourage, as they are coming forward, I want to commend Ed and Galosha publicly, I've already done this in private because when I sat with the boys and I had a question for them, question them regarding water baptism, they knew their stuff. 
and they knew their stuff cold, and it was evidence. I mean, they, they, were, they, they were excited to give answers, and that was evidence that Ed and Glossia had done their work. And I even appreciate that when I told Glossia, her response was, this is pretty close to verbatim, the work I did was marrying the right guy. <laughs> and he's taking care of this, which was her giving thanks to him with him standing there. And I want to publicly commend them. We encourage every parent in here. You are the prophet, priest, and king in your home. You are called under the gospel to train your children. We're, we're here and trying to provide tools and help you, but it is really up to you. And I want to commend Ed and Glossia. They have done this very well with their sons, and the boys were really excited to be water baptized here. Now receive the blessing of your God. May the Lord make you increase, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, through Jesus Christ, your Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. Go in his peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.